The following audio is from Community Bible Church in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information about our church, please visit us online at cbcnashville.org. Touched a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Father, as we come before you this morning, let's pray that you would impress upon our hearts uh, the, the words we just sang, holy, holy, holy. You are indeed holy, and we are unworthy of the great love that you have lavished upon us through your son, Jesus Christ. I pray that as we open your word this morning, as we look at Moses' second sermon and the, the Ten Commandments and just the people's response, Father, help us to have much the same response and understanding that you are holy and awesome and wonderful to help us respond with a reverent fear. The Father, also help us to respond knowing that we have a better mediator than Moses, that we have Jesus Christ. And even as we look forward to his second coming, when not only earth, but heaven also will be shaken, we can rejoice and have a, an assurance that our, your kingdom cannot be shaken. We are yours. We are safe in, in Christ. Father, help us through, as we, as we look at your word this morning, help us to understand it through the work of your spirit. Help us to believe and obey what you have to tell us this morning. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I encourage you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 5. Just by way of brief review, we are 
a few sermons into our Deuteronomy series this morning. And just to kind of give a recap of history so we know who's speaking and who's being spoken to, Deuteronomy is the, the fifth book in what we call the Pentateuch, the, the five books of Moses. And as we understand, the, the people of Israel have been redeemed out of Egypt. God has rescued them through the, the signs and wonders that he did in Egypt. Lastly, through the Passover, bringing them out of Egypt through the Red Sea. We saw that first generation that has come out of Egypt. They, God brought them to the border of the promised land. And even they sent spies into the land. But because of their their fear of man rather than God, they, they rebelled against God and they refused to go into the land and to conquer, even though he had promised. He said, I am the, one, I am the Lord who is fighting for you. And they disobeyed. So that first generation had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years, 40 years while God was killing that generation off. So the second generation then would be brought again to the promised land and be allowed to enter. So Deuteronomy has us in this place where the second generation stands on the brink of, of entering the promised land. And God has already given them, as we've, as we've looked at the first four chapters of Deuteronomy, God has already given them some of that land even before entering the promised land. And it's in this context that Moses is delivering a series of sermons because Moses knows that he is not allowed to enter the promised land. So this is really a, a pastor with his congregation pleading with them, knowing that he can't, this is kind of his last words, his last opportunity to preach to them, to encourage them, to send them into the promised land fearing the Lord, to, to love him. And, and really, as we've looked at already in Deuteronomy, a major, uh, a major theme in Deuteronomy is the heart. It's the heart. So even as we look at the law today, it's, it's not about an ex external obedience, just merely an external obedience, but it is an issue of the heart. And this is what M Moses has been trying to drive home. So this is now the second sermon that Moses is delivering. Again, he's delivering it to the second generation, even though we'll see he speaks to the second generation sometimes as though, he, as though they're the first. And we've talked about that already as, as they are part of God's covenant people. Moses is impressing upon them the covenant that God made with their parents upon them. So let's look at Deuteronomy. We're actually going to start in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 44, and we'll read through chapter 5. Deuteronomy 4, 44. This is the law that Moses set before the people of Israel. These are the testimonies, the statutes, and the rules which Moses spoke to the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt, beyond the Jordan, in the valley opposite Beth Peor, in the land of Sion, the king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon, whom Moses and the people of Israel defeated when they came out of Egypt. And they took possession of his land in the land of Og, the king of Bashan, the two kings of the Amorites, who lived in the, to the east beyond the Jordan, from Aror which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, as far as Mount Sirion, that is Hermon, together with all the Arabah, 
on the east side of the Jordan as far as the Sea of the Arabah under the slopes of Pisgah. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, while I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up into the mountain. He said, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the soldier or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male, and, uh, male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. And you shall not bear false witnesses against your neighbor. And you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, the cloud, and the thick darkness with a loud voice. And he added no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. And as soon as you heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders. And you said, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and greatness, and we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speak with man, and man still live. Now, therefore, why should we die for this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God any more, we shall die. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of the fire as we have and still lived? Go near and hear all that the Lord our God will say and speak to us all that the Lord our God will speak to you that we and we will hear and do it. 
And the Lord heard your words when you spoke to me. And the Lord said to me, I have heard the words of this people, which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. Oh, that they had such a heart as this always to fear me and to keep all my commandments, that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. Go and say to them, return to your tents, but you stand here by me and I will tell you the whole commandment and the statutes and the rules that you shall teach them, that they may do them in the land that I'm giving them to possess. You shall be careful, therefore, to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live, and that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land that you shall possess. Well, as we, as we look at this first part of this lengthier sermon that Moses uh, is is preaching to the second generation. It's important for us first just to remember the context that this sermon is, is preached. The, the context first off is even though Moses is speaking to the second generation, he, he frames this sermon and he frames the retelling of the giving of the Ten Commandments at Sinai as though they were there. Again, as I, as I said, kind of in the brief review that we covered, Moses speaks to the second generation, even though this, the Ten Commandments was delivered to their parents, as this kind of covenant renewal. He, he, is, he is giving them this covenant that God gave them at Sinai, and he says, I know this was given to your parents, but it is just as if God has given it to you. You are part of God's covenant people. And he, he stresses this with some of the language. Verse 3 of chapter 5, he says, Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us who are all of us here alive today. It's showing that steadfast covenant faithfulness of God. This is why one of that, those repeated refrains throughout Scripture when God is speaking of his covenant, it is the covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. He is showing himself to be the, the covenant-making God. So Moses, again, is stressing to the second generation, you are part of God's covenant people. Although this was delivered to your parents, it is just as if God spoke these words to you. And then it's important for us to recognize that Moses is telling this, uh, re, kind of retelling this account to the second generation in a place where their parents have already been redeemed out of the house of slavery. They've already been brought out of Egypt by God's mighty arm. In fact, the very land that they're standing in is land of Sion and Og, these great kings that the Lord conquered for them. So they are standing in land that was previously not theirs. They are occupying houses that previously belonged to someone else because God came in and removed these wicked nations before them and has already shown his covenant faithfulness by giving them land before they even crossed the Jordan into the promised land. In fact, three tribes would end up occupying this land that they're currently standing in. So the context of the giving of the law 
is already out of one where God has redeemed them, where God has rescued them. God has brought them out of the land of Egypt and even delivered them from these mighty kings. As we saw a couple weeks ago, these delivering these fortified cities and defeating the giants before them. That's the, the context of the Ten Commandments is kind of re-preached to the second generation. And we see this in the, what we call the preface to the Ten Commandments. If you look at verse 6, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is what, what God spoke to the people when they were at, at Sinai, when he first delivered the Ten Commandments. And the context is saying, God is saying, I am the Lord who has rescued you. I am the one who has saved you out of the house of Egypt, out of, out of the, the bonds of slavery. And beyond that, he's telling them, I am your God. I am your God. It's important for us to, to recognize this, and we'll see this especially with the, the first commandment that's given. But it's important for us to remember that Israel, in their time of slavery in Egypt, as we see in the testimony of, of other passages of Scripture, they, they were worshiping the Egyptian gods. They were, they were not faithful to God in the land of Egypt. They were already worshiping other gods. In fact, when, when God appeared to Moses from the burning bush, Moses says, well, when I go, who should I say that who has sent me? Who should I say who has sent me? He says, I am who I am. He gives that great covenant name, Yahweh, to, to Moses. But here God is saying, I am the Lord, your God. I have made you mine. I am the one who redeemed you. Because he has redeemed them, they, they belong to him. This reminds me of that often quoted, probably I, I quote it a lot, but I've heard others because it's, it's so rich that the first question in the Heidelberg Catechism, it, it speaks of us belonging to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. It should be a great peace and assurance for us to know that we belong to him. And this is what God is telling his, co his covenant people, Israel, what Moses is declaring to the second generation, the Lord rescued you. He redeemed you out of Egypt to make you his. You belong to him. These, these are the, the refrain that we have as Christians as we think of, of Colossians. We have, been, we have been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. We are no longer our own. We belong to him. That's the context for, for the giving of the Ten Commandments, even at Sinai. As I often repeat, redemption precedes obedience. And this is kind of that tie-in with our, with our law gospel miniseries, that recognition that since the fall... God, God removed Adam and Eve out of, out of the Garden of Eden, taking them away from the tree of life. And the point is, God is not driving. Ever since the fall, he wasn't driving humanity back toward salvation or justification by following the covenant of works. 
But it was through faith that man was supposed to come to God. So even here, he is not driving the people of Israel to a covenant of works. They needed to receive and enter into this covenant by faith. Even these Ten Commandments, they needed to receive them by faith, not, not imagining that for a moment they could possibly keep the commandments perfectly. In fact, in the giving of the commandments at Sinai, it's closely followed by laws for, for, for the sacrificial system. Because it's an understanding that man on his own can't completely, cannot uh, keep the law perfectly. And even we as spirit-filled individuals cannot keep the law of God perfectly. As we talked about in our Sunday school class this morning, our, we, we are, our desires are warfare inside of us. As our flesh wages war against the Holy Spirit working in us. It's not until glory that we will actually be able to fully obey God's commandments perfectly. But it's, it's through this lens, this all-important lens of verse 6, this, this preface to the Ten Commandments, that even we, as we approach the obedience that God has set before us, we approach it as people who recognize the salvation that God has given us. So it is out of gratitude that we can actually delight in his commandments. He is the one who gives, a de- gives us a desire to obey him. We can only respond in gratitude. They can never justify us. As we move to the first commandment in verse 7, you shall have no other gods before me. This phrase before me isn't, isn't a phrase that describes like priority. Again, if, if you think of the Israelites who have come out of Egypt and ha- have a myriad of, of gods that they have worshipped, they've been in this culture that has all these gods. God isn't saying, hey, I am the, I'm, I'm the one that you give the highest priority to. I, I am the, the God of gods. Like, you can have all these other gods as long as you make sure I'm the, I'm the top dog. Yeah, that's, that's not what God is saying. The phrase there, before me, really could be translated before my face. If, if you're familiar with Ligonier Ministries and kind of the, the, the Latin phrase that has become part of their, their kind of ministry ethos is the, the coram deo, before the face of God, before the face of God in his presence. He is saying, I am the only God. There shall be no other gods in my presence. There shall be no other gods before my face, no other gods before me. All other gods are false gods. This is really leading to commandments two through three because as we recognize kind of the logical order of the commandments, God is saying, because I am the only God, I am the only true and living God, therefore I decide how I ought to be worshiped. So since he alone is Lord and our God, he alone is to be worshiped. And he alone determines how he is to be worshipped, not by, not by the imaginations or the devices of men as our 
Confession says we're not free to just dream up how we would most like to worship God, what's comfortable for us, what is pleasing to the culture that we live in, what's pleasing to our, to our own sensibilities. We need to worship God as he has declared himself to be worshiped. He is, the, he is God Almighty, so he sets the standards for his worship. So we look first at the second, next at the second commandment in verses 8 through 10. Speaking, we're not, we won't reread all these passages, but speaking of uh, his worship and not creating idols, not worshiping him uh, with images or, or likenesses. This is kind of a main thrust of Deuteronomy and really all of Scripture that God has revealed himself through, his, through the spoken word. As Moses said in his first sermon, he says, you saw, you saw no form or likeness on the mountain. They saw fire and the, the smoke, but that, w- that wasn't God's likeness. God revealed himself through his voice. God still reveals himself through his voice, through, through his word, through the preached word. So we're not supposed to worship God through images or likenesses. As we know the story that Moses is referring back to here, as the story goes on in Exodus, they would very quickly break this as Moses lingered long on the mountain and the people were like, okay, hey, Aaron, when's Moses going to come down? Maybe he's dead up there. We don't know what's going on. It's like, well, what do we do without Moses? Well, they figured the next best thing was to create an idol. And, and the, the context there probably, probably is an idol that was supposed to represent God. That with this golden calf, they were trying to give something for their eyes to fall on that their hands could touch that represented the God that delivered them out of Egypt. And this was not something that pleased God. God didn't say, well, at least, at least they're worshiping me. Even though I don't want them to make idols, you know, they're, they're trying. No, God, was, God says, okay, Moses, watch out. I'm going to wipe them out, and I'm just going to start over with you. And we see there Moses interceding for the people. So no images or likenesses of God, and certainly no images or likenesses of, of false gods, gods who are no gods at all. Both are prohibited in this commandment. Why? The passage says, God says, why? Because I am a jealous God. He's their covenant head, their, their husband. They belong to him, as we've said. So, so worshiping him with images or worshiping false gods is, is a spiritual adultery. You think through uh, some of the prophets who came, and we think specifically of Hosea as he came to the people of Israel and Hosea had to be this kind of living, uh, living example, this living parable in front of the people as he married an unfaithful wife. As she kept going out 
and prostituting herself. And it was a picture for this relationship between God and his people, how God is the covenant head, the husband who is faithful. And it is the, it is the covenant people, the bride who keep going out and committing adultery. He is God alone and cannot worship him in any other way than what he has told us. Verses 9, the last part of verse 9, he says, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is a sweet, a sweet statement because in it we see the balance of where God is, God is saying, I do have a righteous judgment against sin. When my wrath is poured out on people, it is a righteous wrath. To the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but... How does he describe his steadfast love? Showing steadfast love to thousands, to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. And for us as Christians, we can really see as, we're hit, as our lives are hidden away in Christ, Christ has been the one who has perfectly obeyed these commands. Christ is the one who's gone before us, who he, he, didn't, he didn't abolish the law, but he fulfilled it. He fulfilled it perfect, perfectly. So when we're hidden away in him, we can have the sweet testimony from God's own lips here. He keeps, he shows steadfast love to thousands of those who love him and keep his commandments. We move to the third commandment. In verse 11, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Just kind of touching quickly on some of these. This is, you know, oftentimes we maybe hear this and think, okay, that's only saying, using different names of, of the Lord kind of carelessly or maybe uh, taking um, kind, of, uh, kind of quick oaths and, and slapping God's name on it or using God's name as a curse word. And while that's certainly part of it, it, it has even a deeper impact than simply that. It, it also applies to our behavior before others as we bear his name. This is you know, mentioned in, in scripture a couple different, a few different places, a few different ways, but the way, in fact, the, the passage that uh, we read in Sunday school this morning out of Ezekiel, we the people profaned the name of the Lord by their behavior among the nations. They profaned his name. This, this is breaking the, the third commandment. And for us as Christians, this is, you know, we, we even think of the, the name Christians. Very likely it was first applied to us kind of in a derogatory way and yet kind of taken on by God's people in a kind of badge of honor. 
But as we go about living our lives as believers, if we are people who are disobedient to the revealed will of God, disobedient to him, that we are li- we're living in habitual sins and the people around us look at us and say, wait, isn't Jeremy a Christian? We are, I am profaning Christ's name by my sin. As I think about my sin in my own household, this is one of those reasons why I want to make sure that when I sin in front of my wife and children, that I'm quick to come and repent of it, to confess my sins, to tell them that I was wrong because I, don't, I, I want them to, to know that I hate that sin. I want them to to know that I am a sinner and I rely on the grace of God through Christ. I don't want to profane the name of my Savior through my lawless actions. The fourth commandment, again, this is the last commandment really dealing with how we ought to worship God it's, one of the, it's the longest commandment, so I'm not going to reread it, but this is the Sabbath commandment. And in a couple interesting things here, understanding how it's delivered on Sinai in Exodus chapter 20 and then how Moses preaches it here in Deuteronomy 5. In Exodus 20, when God establishes, uh, when he tells the, the people of this Sabbath principle, he points back to creation. But here, Moses speaks to the principle because of the fact that they have been redeemed. He says, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. So this is really Moses not changing the reason, but just further developing the reason. They were to observe the Sabbath because of their redemption out of the house of slavery in Egypt. It's also important for us to see that the Sabbath principle didn't, as it originated out of creation, it wasn't first kind of revealed to the people at Sinai. In fact, in Exodus 16, when God gives them manna, they are already observing the Sabbath principle there. So this is before the Ten Commandments were delivered. On the Sabbath, they weren't to collect the manna, and God miraculously preserved the the double portion that they collected on Friday so that it would last them through the Sabbath. So as we have God as, as as the Redeemer who says, you are no longer your own people, but you belong to me. And in the first commandment, he says, I am the Lord. There shall be no no other God before me. He then, as we saw the progression, he then says, this is how, as the one and only true and living God, how I ought to be worshiped in commandments two, three, and four. He now moves to show how, since he is the one true and living God, how he is the one who determines how we ought to live before him and before others. 
So we see in the fifth commandment, in verse 16, honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you. As we think of the rest of Scripture and how the rest of Scripture speaks to uh, the authorities that God has placed in our lives, we understand this command to, to really apply to all authority structure, all roles uh, of, of authority and submission that God has established. How we need to honor the authorities that God has given us. However, it's, I think it is significant that in the Ten Commandments, God says, honor your father and your mother. And it's really showing that the structure of authority that God has given in the household is foundational for all of society. It's really has been described by a number of authors that the household is the, the building block of all the rest of society, all the rest of culture. So it really begins there with children honoring their parents. And he says that it may go well with you in the land. That's, that's a picture of, of not only the household, but all authority structures that God has given us. It goes well with us when the authorities and those who are under those authorities are are living in light of the role that God has given them. We think of Romans 13 here, where God has given the, the sword to government. They, they, they don't wield the sword in vain. They are meant, they are meant to uh, be there as a threat against evil, to, to punish evildoers, to, to preserve and support the good so even when that authority structure is working and we are obeying the laws of the land, it goes, as a general principle, it goes well with us. Even in, 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 a, in a world where it is obviously filled with unbelievers, we know God is restraining evil and he uses governments to help restrain evil. The sixth commandment in verse 17, you shall not murder. This is important for us as we consider man being created in the image of God. In fact, in Genesis 9, 6, as, as Noah comes off of the ark, God tells him, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed for God made man in his own image. This is why as believers we, we fight for and, and celebrate the sanctity, the sanctity of life. Even above animal life, human life is especially important because we are created in God's image. This is one of those commandments that Christ points to in his Sermon on the Mount, kind of looking at the heart of the issue as he reveals, he says, you've heard it said that you shall not murder, but I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. 
So the point that Christ is bringing out in, this, in his sermon is that anger, that murder is born in the heart. 1 John 3, John writes, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So there's a, a deeper heart issue here that we understand. And, and we'll see that especially coming up here in the 10th commandment. The seventh commandment, verse 18, you shall not commit adultery. Again, this is one that Christ points to the heart issue with. He says it's not just a matter of actually committing the, the act of adultery. He says Any, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This is where, where we, it really sheds light as Christ talks about the the sixth and the seventh commandment in this regard, it really sheds light on the fact that the murderous intentions and adulterous intentions are all come out of our heart. As, it, as I was reading through the, the Ten Commandments this week and thinking through them and meditating upon them and thinking of the, the reality of the heart that these things are born of the heart. I was thinking of the, of the movie Minority Report where you kind of have the, the, this whole police squad that enforces thought crimes because the idea is you can stop the murder before it happens because it's born basically in the, in the thought and the heart. But in reality, if, if the Ten Commandments were enforced, we would all be locked up we would all be locked up well before we committed what we thought on the surface of any, any of these external crimes. Because these things are born in the heart. It's also a beautiful picture of Christ. Again, as we think of God as the covenant head, Christ as our husband, as if you think of Ephesians 5, how he cherishes his bride, his church, to the, to the point where he even dies for her. This is one of those things that I love that's drawn out as you read through the Genesis account. And you, you read of Abraham you showing up with, his, with Sarah and says, hey, say, we're going to say you're my sister. Okay? Because they're going to think you're beautiful, so they're going to kill me so they can take you. So let's just say you're my sister. So he kind of does this whole thing to save his own skin, putting his wife in some really difficult situations. But we have Christ as our perfect and loving covenant head, our husband, who never sets his bride out to say, oh, go ahead and so she's just my sister. No, he, he goes so far as he dies for us to preserve us, to keep us, to, to present him before our heavenly father spotless and without blemish. The eighth commandment, verse 19, you shall not steal. 
as God's covenant people, well, I think we're going to get into this in some coming chapters in Deuteronomy, but as God's covenant people, we ought to be a people who understand that everything belongs to God. Everything belongs to God. And he is the one who apportions to each what he wants to entrust us with. So whenever we have, whenever we steal, or as we understand the intent of our heart, we, we want to take what doesn't belong to us, we are telling God that he doesn't know what's best for us. We, he, we are telling God that what he has given us isn't enough. So we want more. Instead, the, as God's covenant people, as Christians, our lives ought to be lives that are marked by, by generosity, by contentment. I was thinking of the, the, what Paul says in Philippians 4, talking about how he has learned whether he has had plenty or has been lacking or whether he's been suffering or doing well, whatever it might be, he has learned in all things to be content. And this is really what ought to mark our lives as believers. And even in Ephesians 4, as Paul it talks about the thief and he says no longer the thief is no longer to steal you put you put to death that action you put on generosity you go get a job so that you can earn a living so why so that you have something to share with others in need so our lives ought to never be marked by stealing but marked by generosity and, and contentment the ninth commandment, verse 20, you shall have, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Again, this is a, a, another commandment as we think about being citizens of God's kingdom, being his children, how we ought to be people who exemplify who he is. And God is truth. God delights in the truth. So we ought to be a people who delight in truth over falsehood. Then the 10th commandment comes. And this is one where we really, I think, when we understand and we slow down to read the 10th commandment, we can see that what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount was already known when the 10 commandments is delivered first at Sinai and when Moses is preaching it again to the people here. Verse 21, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. This really does drive down to the heart of the matter. Because everything else that God has given us, we can see, we can look back at, at the the, our heart coveting and desiring something that we don't have. We can look back at the authority structures that God has given us in our lives. And we are, when we are usurping the authorities in our lives, we are saying we want more power. We are not satisfied with what God, the, the role that God has placed me in. We think through each of these not murdering, not committing adultery, not stealing, 
not bearing false witness. All these things are born out of our heart, and this 10th commandment really drives that home. This is why Paul, when he speaks in Romans 7, he speaks to this commandment. He says, this is the commandment that really opened my eyes to understand the sinfulness of my sin. Because in a sense, you might look at the rest of the commandments and say, check, I haven't murdered anybody. Check, I haven't committed adultery. Check, I haven't stolen. You go through these things, but this 10th commandment says, no, you have if you have so much as coveted in your heart. You've desired what doesn't belong to you. You have broken it. As we meditate on the, the Ten Commandments, we, we need to come to that same place that Paul came to, seeing the sinfulness of our sin and really the absolute perfection and holiness of God. So we see as we look at the Ten Commandments that God is the only true and living God. He alone is to be worshipped. Therefore, he determines how he is to be worshipped and he determines how we should live our lives before him and others. As the people heard God delivering these Ten Commandments to them at Sinai. They had one response that as we read the account here in Deuteronomy, we understand that God is pleased with this response. Verse 24 of chapter 5. Behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and greatness. And we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speak with man, and man still live. Now therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore, we shall die. They heard the Ten Commandments. They, they felt the weight of the law but they felt the weight and the holiness of God as he delivered it to, to them by his very voice. We think of, think of the voice of, of God and the power behind the voice of God. Just think of a few examples. Think, let there be light. It's the voice of God that brought forth creation. You think of the voice of our Savior as his disciples realize that he is not a mere man when he wakes up in the boat and he commands the very storm, peace, be still. And the storm ceased. You think again of Christ outside the tomb of Lazarus. Lazarus, come forth. He commanded 
the dead. He who they were afraid of even rolling back the stone because they were afraid of the stench that he'd been dead long enough for, it to, for him to start stinking. And yet the Lord commands the dead to come to life. Is the voice of our Savior on the cross saying, it is finished. And the temple curtain separating the holy of holies from the rest of the temple was torn in two. The voice of God is a powerful thing. And as these Israelites at the foot of Sinai heard the voice of God, they were afraid that they would die. We have, we have survived this long. We are concerned that we're not going to survive any longer. And they needed a mediator. They said that God, has, God had shown us his glory and greatness. And this is it's important. That this is just a partial, kind of a partial revealing of God's glory and greatness to them. You think of Moses asking, asking God to show him his glory. And he says, I can't show you my full glory. So I, I will set you safely in the cleft of this rock and I will pass before you and I will let you see my, my backside, but I can't reveal my full glory to you or you will die. Even with just the, the partial view, the ex partial exposure to God's glory, they were they were terrified and they, they realized that they couldn't bear anymore. They needed, they meet, needed a mediator. As we sang today, holy, 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 this is exactly what we need to be thinking of. God is so incredibly holy and, and we are so sinful and unholy. We, like Isaiah, need to fall down on our face and cover our mouths saying, Woe is me, for I am ruined. We are ruined in the sight of God's glory. So the people asked for a mediator. They asked for Moses. They said, from here on out, Moses, you, you receive God's word, and then you come down and deliver God's word to us. Please don't let us hear directly from him again. When we think of Moses as a, as a mediator, and I think I mentioned last week, Moses, or I, guess, I think maybe this was the, the post I put out earlier this week in Realm, that Moses is a, a type of Christ in this regard as a mediator, but he is an imperfect mediator. This is Moses who wasn't even allowed to enter the promised land because of his unbelief before the people. So another mediator would be needed as, as Moses would die on, this, on that, this side of the Jordan. But not just another mediator, we need a, a better mediator. A better mediator was required. We think of this picture of Moses and just considering who, who Moses is, if I can find it here. In Numbers 12, 
Miriam and Aaron oppose Moses and they're complaining and God comes, God comes and speaks to them. He says, hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream, not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And again, I believe it's at the end of Deuteronomy, the testimony given to us about Moses. They're not a prophet. Verse 10 of chapter 34 of Deuteronomy, there, was not a, a, there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, none like him in all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt. But then we consider the very first verses out of Hebrews. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. We needed a better mediator, and that better mediator, that the mediator that we required, the perfect mediator between God and man, who could put his hand both on God and put his hand on man to be the intercessor that we required as Christ. And as Moses ascended the mountain to talk to God and intercede for the people. Jesus himself, after the resurrection, after accomplishing redemption, ascended on high and sat down at the right hand of power, the right hand of majesty, and he intercedes for us continually. The people of Israel, when they heard these commandments, they knew that God is holy, and they knew that they were unholy. They knew that they needed a mediator. And Moses satisfied that need for a time. And notice God's response to their request. Verse 28, the Lord heard your words when you spoke to me and the Lord said to me, I have heard the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. Oh, that they had such a heart as this always to fear me and to keep all my commandments that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. This drives home the fact that God in giving the 10 commandments was not after mere external obedience, but he's after the heart. He is after their heart. And when they come and say, God is too holy for us. We can't bear it anymore. We need a mediator. God says, amen. That's exactly right. 
you do need a mediator. Oh, that their heart was always like this because God knows that they would disobey him over and over again. And as that faithful husband, he would over and over again bring them back. As we wrap up, we have to consider our great salvation that we have. Consider what God has done for us in Christ, his holiness, God, and Christ's perfect mediation for us. And we need to think about it in terms of God's commands, God's revealed will for us. So the passage that Matt read earlier, Hebrews 12 I don't know that I should read the whole thing, but I'm going to start with verse 25 as we think of Jesus. In verse 24, it says, Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the blood, the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So he says that in verse 25 of Hebrews 12, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Again, notice the, the power of the spoken word of God. As, as Christians, as believers, as people who have been rescued, ha have been redeemed out of the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of God's beloved son, we ought to be a people who embrace him and who embrace his revealed will, embrace his commandments. And the author of Hebrews is saying here, comparing it back, back to Mount Sinai, he says, how much more should we not refuse the voice of him who was speaking to us? Verse 26, at that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. With Christ as our, our perfect mediator, we can, as, as the author of Hebrews says earlier in the book, we can approach his throne of grace with confidence. But that doesn't negate the fact that we also approach with a, a heart felt desire and a spirit-fueled desire and empowerment to obey him, to worship him as he has commanded us to worship. So we even approach that throne of grace with confidence, but also with understanding that our, our worship must be deemed acceptable to God, as he says here in chapter 12, done with reverence and awe. And what reason does he give for this? 
Same reason that we will soon see in Deuteronomy 4, our God is a consuming fire. God doesn't change. So we don't look back at Sinai and say, oh yeah, well that was just the wrathful God who we should be afraid of. The God of the New Testament is the loving God who's all daisies and roses and nothing, un nothing unkind and we don't need to fear him. We can talk, talk about him as though he's just our pal. The author of Hebrews says, no, you can approach the throne of grace with confidence, but don't forget that our God is a consuming fire. So do not refuse him who is speaking. We hear God's word to us from his word, the Bible, but as we read in Hebrews 1, his word greatly revealed to us in his son, Jesus Christ, the full fulfillment of it. He is, he is the word. We need to remember that our God is a consuming fire, that we need to look, on, look upon him and much like the children of Israel at Sinai, recognize that we need a mediator, but we recognize that God has provided that mediator for us, a perfect mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. As we come to communion this morning, it's that mediation that we celebrate, that we celebrate every week, every Lord's Day. Jesus Christ has perfectly mediated for us. He has done what Moses, what any of the other priests or kings could never do, the prophets could ever do. He became the perfect prophet, priest, and king, the perfect mediator for us to the fact, to the extent that he even died on a cross for us to redeem us. So as we come before the Lord's table, we celebrate that fact. We celebrate the redemption that is ours in Christ. And we come back to this foundational principle of the Christian life that God has redeemed us. This is, as we looked at the preface to the Ten Commandments this morning, I am the Lord your God who redeemed you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is kind of that preface for the Christian life. As we take communion, we are saying, he is the Lord our God who redeemed us out of the house of sin and slavery and of death. He has conquered it. He has redeemed us. And we belong to him. He is our God, our Lord and our God who redeems us and makes us his own. We belong to him. That's why when we take this, we call it a family meal because it is a meal to be enjoyed by those who proclaim that truth that Jesus Christ is their Lord and God, that he is their Savior. We take it together celebrating what Christ has done for us. If you don't hold to that truth, if you don't know, if you don't call Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior, then we just ask that you allow these elements to pass by you. Don't partake of them. They, they're not for you. But if you 
are in that place where you don't know that you could call yourself a Christian, if you don't know that you could, that you have put your faith in Christ, we, we don't want to simply say, don't take the elements. We, we want to invite you to talk to us, to talk to someone. Very much the message in Deuteronomy as Moses is facing his death and his people are moving away, he is saying, choose today. Don't, don't let another day go by wrestling with those thoughts. Let's pray. Father, I praise you for your word and I praise you for just the example that we have with Israel. And I just pray that you would help us as we consider the, our perfect medi- mediator, Jesus Christ, and we consider your law, that you would, not help, that you would help us to not be a people who, who somehow think that you, are, that you have changed, that you're no longer to be feared, but that you would help us to be a people who have a reverent awe and fear of you, who recognize your holiness. In fact, I would say that because you have given us your son and you put your son to death on the cross, suffering the wrath for our sins in our place, Father, your, your holiness is revealed even more in that than on any other page in Scripture. Putting your son to death in our place. That reveals your holiness in such a wonderful way. So help us as your people to not refuse you when you speak to us. Help us as we come before this, the Lord's Supper, help us to celebrate what you have done for us in Christ. Help us to feast upon Christ, to be nourished by him. pray that you would bless us through the taking of this meal, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation from Community Bible Church. For more information, please visit us at 6005 Edmondson Pike in Nashville, Tennessee, or online at cbcnashville.org.